It has been a very long-standing dream of mine to have the opportunity to be a portfolio manager. I was actually originally inspired by my grandmother. Um, she never invested professionally. She lived in New York City, but she would come out to Southern California to the country where I grew up and spend her winters as my roommate in my bedroom as a young girl. And my fondest memories of her was her waking up in the morning, opening up her Wall Street Journal and circling the stocks that she was interested in buying and selling that day and calling her broker on the phone. And it sounded like, wow, this is, seems really exciting. I would potentially love to do this someday. We recognize genius wherever it exists. And if you're known by the company you keep, we are proud to not only spotlight the women that are part of Rockefeller Capital Management's unique network, but also welcome our brilliant audience members. Hi, everyone. I'm Laura Esposito, head of Rockefeller's Enterprise Client Coverage Group, and welcome back to Genius Loves Company. Everyone has a story to tell, and we're excited to hear those from some of Rockefeller's top private advisors, investors, senior leaders, and women in our broader network about the life and career experiences that got them here and the insights and perspectives they've gained along the way. I'm thrilled that with me today is Avery Sheffield, co-founder, chief investment officer, and senior portfolio manager of Rockefeller's Vantage Rock Capital within Rockefeller Asset Management. Welcome, Avery. It's great to be here. Thanks for being with us. So Avery, let's dive right in. Let's take a deeper look at how you got here today. A woman portfolio manager, a career path, and you and I have had this conversation on numerous occasions where women are still woefully underrepresented. So when you look back at your childhood, tell us about your path. What kind of led you here? Were you always interested in the markets? And where did that spark originally stem from? Yes. So I'm so excited to be here today on this show and also to have the opportunity to be a portfolio manager. It has been a very long standing dream of mine. I was actually originally inspired by my grandmother. Um, she never invested professionally. She lived in New York City, but she would come out to Southern California to the country where I grew up and spend her winters as my roommate in my bedroom as a young girl. And my fondest memories of her was her waking up in the morning, opening up her Wall Street Journal and circling this stocks that she was interested in buying and selling that day and calling her broker on the phone. And it sounded like, wow, this is, seems really exciting. I would potentially love to do this someday. However, she passed away when I was 13 before I could really learn the business from her. But that spark was really there. And whenever I met someone who was involved in investing from that point on, I would actually try to corner them somehow and just ask them questions. And two key people during that time were actually two of my uncles. One of my uncles was a bond trader and one of my uncles actually was a commodity trader. And so at family gatherings, I would kind of, as a teenager and beyond, find them in the corner and say, hey, you know, what's happening with interest rates or what's happening with commodities? And, and that really spurred me along. So now I'm even more fascinated because you did have that early intrigue, yet you, when you pursued your educational path, you study neuroscience. So connect those dots for me. I think that's so instructive, though, because oftentimes careers, and you know this better than anybody else, don't follow a linear path. So what was the impetus for neuroscience? And then how did you evolve from there? You also know I love about your past that you were 
you worked in executive headhunting and recruiting, but just tell us about that path that was really nonlinear and connect it back to, at some stage, didn't you think, I'm going to go the more traditional finance route, go into investment banking, management consulting, but you didn't, and yet here you are. Right. No, it's a very good question. So, Both of those uncles lived in different cities. I didn't actually get to see them very often. And I didn't have anyone around me who was in the investment world. And I thought, well, my uncles did this professionally. My grandmother never worked professionally. I didn't see it as an option for me, honestly, as a young woman, as passionate as I was about it. Um, And I wanted to learn how the world worked. And to me, like at that time, and I love science, I love learning about everything actually, but I thought, well, if I learn how the human mind works, I'm gonna have these insights into how the universe works, at least through the human perspective. And so I started doing research as a junior person at a place called the Salk Institute in San Diego. It's one of the most preeminent neuroscience institutions in the world. And what I realized while working with these incredible scientists was that actually the pursuit of a lot of science is learning more and more about less and less. And I wanted to learn more and more about more and more. That goes back to kind of understanding the macro environment and the world of investing. And so I was already in college, but I enjoyed the pursuit of science. I got the opportunity to learn all the key scientific disciplines as well as understand the human mind. And I thought, well, this is gonna be a great preparation for life. And it was absolutely fascinating. So then fast forward, but I wanna learn about the world. I wanna learn about business. And so I went up to Silicon Valley. I grew up in Southern California, went up to Silicon Valley and was there actually through the last tech boom and bust, which was an absolutely fascinating experience. I had experience to work around the world, specifically in the wireless industry. And that was incredibly dynamic. From there, retained executive search, as you mentioned, Laura. And I made that transition because while I was in specific roles within the wireless industry, there was only so much scope that each role encompassed. And I wanted to have a much broader role. And by working on searches across multiple industries, across multiple positions at a very senior level, I gained huge insight into how many industries worked. Actually, those insights actually informed my understanding of industries today that I employ in investing and you understood leadership and management, which is so important to investing. So that was a really fascinating step in my journey. Again, I was building confidence to potentially become an investor. Through that, I realized, you know, I really do want to invest. Like all these other things are great, but I want to do that. So I went off to business school and then went kind of more directly on my way. And post-business school, think back to your younger self and the portrayal you had in your mind. And maybe that was more specific around investment banking culture. And of course, you ultimately went to you went to the sell side and equity research initially. But how did you eventually overcome that fear that you had or that initial portrayal? And I guess if you were speaking to a younger you about your concerns of the environment broadly in finance, what would you say to your younger self or a younger person asking you about the environment? Yes. Well, I would say, first of all, I think the environment in general has gotten much better. But what I would have encouraged my younger self to do was really to seek out more mentors. I assumed that those mentors weren't going to be there for me to have sought them out through, you can do cold calling, you can do alumni directories, like find people who are in those careers who seem like nice people or contact enough of them until you find the nice people mm-hmm. to realize that there are great people in every industry. And actually, I think there are a lot of fabulous people and 
a lot of fabulous entry-level positions in this industry. Oh, absolutely. So because your grandmother, unfortunately, passed away while you were still quite young at 13, and then fortunately, you were able to glean insights from your uncles. But I guess what I'm curious about, because you were much younger in that instructive time with your grandmother, did you understand the financial implications of the stock market at the time. And what I'm curious about as well is, if you think back to kind of earliest memories of money, what do you think of? Yeah, so I think of a couple things. First of all, I think of my grandmother and my mother reflected through my grandmother. She was young, an adult, but a young adult during the Great Depression. And that had a very big impact on her. That's actually when she started investing because she just thought stocks were too cheap. She'd been here in New York City through like the roaring 20s and she's like, this is crazy. And then she's like, wow, things just look too cheap. And so she would always buy stocks when they were inexpensive and sell them before they became too crazy. And that kind of discipline of hers, I thought, and her pride in over many decades, actually having succeeded following that really was instilled in me, as well as, you know, a frugality, which I think is also tied to like, you're interested in things where you get real value. And so we just grew up in a really frugal way in our household. I mean, I learned, you know, math by going to the supermarket and figuring out the cost per ounce of the different cans of soup. And are you getting the value from the brand? or not. So that was really instilled in me. Something else, though, I'll share is in high school, the lesson I learned from math that I think about more than anything else was compound interest. And it was back when Excel was brand new and we went into the computer lab and learned about compound interest. Who taught you this? That was our, like, our, our it was like our combination of computer science and our math teacher. And that has stuck with me wow. so strongly every day. It's like, do not pay someone else compound interest. Yeah. Get no wonder you're a Buffett acolyte, right? <laughs> exactly. Get the most <laughs> compound interest for yourself. So the combinations of frugality and understand the impact of compound interest are kind of two key early principles that I think about on almost a daily basis. I think I missed that lesson in my math or computer <laughs> science, definitely in high school, for sure. But I can see how impassioned and how it ultimately led you to where you are today. So let's fast forward to where you are today. You are managing a team within Rockefeller Asset Management. You and your co-founder, Dan Rosenthal, your partner, and the rest of your team just passed your three-year anniversary, a significant milestone. So congratulations. Congratulations on that. Thank you. How do you manage through the emotional elements of market volatility, geopolitics? I mean, my goodness, you launched in the early days of COVID, yes. right? And we could tick through the list of all the other variables. And you're investing hundreds of millions of dollars on behalf of investors who have asked you to be stewards of their capital and to grow responsibly their capital. How do you manage that? It's a very good question, Laura, because I think that it is one of the most underappreciated aspects of being a portfolio manager. Your emotional constitution is, I would say, almost like if you're competent, the most important driver of how you approach investing and your success. And so it's interesting because you want to tap into your emotions for the lessons that they teach you, 
but you don't want to get overly carried away by the monkey on the chain of the market constantly pulling on you. So the way I manage it is, first of all, I have a natural tendency, like when things are going well, I get a little nervous, which I think is is a probably a healthy tendency. That's just a constitutional dynamic. So I tend to pull back a little bit if things look too good. When things are going against me, then it's a question of, am I right or is the timing off or is this actually creating a bigger opportunity? And the way I try to sort that out is number one, like I seek out the counsel of really wise people. So I have, you know, Dan is my partner, my team, the leadership at Rockefeller, other investors I respect greatly. I connect with them to say, am I crazy? Are we crazy? Or is the market crazy? Um, Also, I, as many others do, like seek out the counsel, very wise, investors who I'm not uh, closely affiliated with. Mm. So I watch Bloomberg News, CNBC, and like read articles um, to really help calibrate how much of this, the pain I'm feeling right now is justified or not justified and an opportunity. So that's what I do from like a very practical understanding of sorting out are the emotions like making sense and can they teach me something about the dynamics that are going on. But then there's the aspect of just stepping back. Mm. and having perspective because if you don't have perspective you're going to make bad decisions and so i think the idea of like that oh the best people burn the midnight oil it's just not correct because then you're not in a grounded place to make the best decisions in the toughest times and so for that i have four children (laughs) and i have you know other pursuits that i like to do socialize with friends and such and being able to step back in that way and and have you know delightful other aspects of my life i think Mm. is is something that helps keep me calibrated we've had this conversation as well because i feel like in my role having the privilege and the honor of working alongside many successful investors like you It is this a unique attribute that I've seen in the most successful that is one of temperament. Yes. I feel like it's not talked about. I feel like the expectation is for extreme confidence. And why do others not seem to recognize what you and I and, of course, many others think about that all-important quality for portfolio, successful portfolio managers? I think it's because people believe that investing is about being smarter than other people. Maybe because when you listen to people who are really esteemed and been doing this for a long time, they project, I mean, they're certainly highly intelligent, and they project an era of confidence and calm yeah. when they're speaking you know, out in the public. I think the reality is internally though, most people will have, you know, feel emotions if they're very good because there's an intuitive part of this. And like your emotion, if you don't have any emotions, you're gonna miss information, I mm. think. But I think that it's been kind of expected as a cultural norm that the more you project this calm and um, almost unemotional, mm-hmm. I mean, you need to be calm, you need to be even, but project an unemotional state, like kind of the more you're going to be perceived to be good. And I think it's more about having those emotions, but navigating and being kind of smooth in, in the undulations of yeah. them. So if we think about the fact that some of those qualities, maybe the dispassion or the temperament, 
oftentimes will be aligned more with with women. Why are we still such an underrepresented group in buy side investment management, particularly portfolio managers? Yes. Well, I think there's still this perception out there that this industry is not lifestyle friendly. Right. So mm. the idea that you could have four children and be a portfolio and manager and, and have garden. all these yes. other side interests. Exactly. I like to throw big parties, too. <laughs> um, I'm very proud of the Halloween party I just threw uh, for 300 people. So, <laughs> so you probably planned on your own and yes, executed. Yes. Uh-huh. No, that's my distraction. <laughs> so I think that young women in particular still think that it's about working harder and not taking care of yourself. And I think that the more we have role models out there who are women who have balanced lives, it's not enough just to have women in senior positions, but to know that they have families, that they have fun, to know that this role is actually about making good decisions, which requires balance and judgment. Mm -hmm. And that that kind of historical, I'd say, male archetype of the man who never comes home from the office and, and works all the time is not actually the model for the longest and most thriving success. And I think that's reflected by the top male investors out there. Absolutely. But, but it's just, it's, it's, when young women don't see those role models and that know that they can also have a family, I think that just keeps them from seeking out those opportunities the same way I did the when I was younger. Did. Even exactly. though my grandmother loved this, but she did it on her own time. Right. This, she was passionate about investing and gardening and she did both. So. <laughs> <laughs> so if we look at your more circuitous path that led you here today, when you, when you look back and you think about what you studied in school, because I often get asked by young people, and this is gender agnostic, is, well, if I'm not a finance major, I mean, and literally that's how specific they get. It's not even, they think it's not even good enough to be a business undergrad. It's like, well, if I'm not a finance major, then how do I possibly get into this field? Or not, and not only that, it's, it's will that set me up for future success by studying liberal arts, by studying the sciences. And you're kind of the poster child. You've ended up where you've ended up. And I'm sure you look back at what you studied and draw upon that significantly in your day to day and even some of the other jobs in Silicon Valley that you pursued post-college pre-MBA. But reflect on that a bit for me. Yes. So I actually think that one of the most important characteristics of being a great portfolio manager, along with being able to have emotions, but manage mm. through them, listen to them appropriately, is uh, is actually dot connecting. So it's really having the ability to see something over here and something over there and realizing before other people that those things are connected. If all you know how to do is understand financial statements, but you don't know what goes into those financial statements, you don't know the factor that might be halfway around the world that's going to influence those financial statements. If you don't understand the management team's strengths and weaknesses as they come into a new environment, you're not going to do well. So for us, like when we look to hire, I mean, we're looking for people who are passionate about learning, who are deeply curious, who like to make connections. And as you also want someone who can do analysis, who can understand a financial statement, it's very important. But 
I and our team, we spend much more time on the qualitative factors, on the inputs into those models. And as you have advances like AI, I mean, who knows where what where modeling skills are going to need to be even a few years from now, as maybe the AI machine, you can tell them the inputs and they print, they give you, generate a beautiful model. But I think it's going to be a while until machines are really good at that dot connecting across mm. different areas and bringing all that together for really valuable insight. So what I would say to a young person is study what you're passionate about, learn how to think, think learn how to critically. write, learn how to communicate. And both from a quantitative and a qualitative standpoint, you do need to have that quantitative standpoint, but it absolutely does not need to be in finance. You want to learn those skills along the way. You want to come to a job interview, understanding what a financial statement is, but that doesn't have to be your major in college. Yeah. And that's what like we're really looking for when we add to our team. That makes so much sense. So when I think about you, I don't know how you do what you do in your team day in and day out, because I'm thinking about market goes against you, your shorts are ripping, your longs aren't working. I want to go back to the, how do you remain dispassionate? And how do you critically evaluate, okay, one of those inputs was wrong, or it's not materializing as quickly as we thought. What is your process for acknowledging, made a mistake, cut bait, move on? How do you manage that? Yes. Well, if I realize I've made a mistake, that's actually the easiest bad situation to deal with because mm. like I made a mistake. I mean, if I've made a mistake and that mistake is owning a stock that's going to continue to go down or shorting a stock that's going to continue to go up, then then you just cut out of it and yeah. then you just move on. Yeah. What's hard is when you feel like you didn't make a mistake. You made a mistake on timing. Yeah. But you're not mistaken on your conclusion. And then you're just trying to figure out, okay, how off am I on the timing? Is there any way to understand whether this is a near-term dynamic of the market not seeing things the way I'm seeing them or a longer-term dynamic? And so what goes into that is really trying to understand the volatility of the underlying stock, right? So if you realize like this isn't going, this is going against me, but it's not going against me that much, or mm -hmm. it looks like it's unlikely to go against me that much more, well, it, then you then it's easier just to say, okay, well, I'm going to ride it through. If it turns out that something's more volatile than you thought, you might say, well, and you can see that there are dynamics where it might go a lot further that direction than you originally anticipated, then maybe you take a little bit of money off the table. So that's a judgment call that, I mean, I have not perfected every day with every position. It's like, am I the right size in this relative for the asymmetry and the opportunity, but as well as managing the risk. And we are in such dynamic times that for me, it's just accepting a certain level of imperfection. Like I'm, and that's actually an extremely important part of being a great portfolio manager is to accept your imperfection, to continually be passionate about trying to get better, mm -hmm. but to accept that you are imperfect and you're not going to be able to get it right. And that that is just part of it. And you want to come back every day. Or for me, it's like, I don't, I don't know that I really leave, um, even when I'm doing the fun things that I'm doing. <laughs> um, just continually having that tenacity of like, well, I'm going to figure it out better tomorrow. tomorrow. So, and loving that pursuit and that challenge and that excitement of trying to get better at optimizing when are the right times to go after something? When are the times to pull back? Where did you get that resiliency from? 
do you think was it innate was it developed was it some might call it masochism <laughs> I don't know it's just the pursuit day in like, and day out just alright tomorrow I'm gonna come back at it tomorrow yes I don't know because it's so much fun when you yeah. I mean when you get it right it's so much fun and then it's personally challenging you feel like you're developing more as a person like with yeah. my children you know and they're like oh if I didn't get something right. Well, like, I didn't get a lot of things right today. And I'm here, like, and we're going to go and have fun tonight. And so it's like you're learning these life lessons and hopefully becoming a better mentor to others and better at doing what you're doing. So that just that pursuit of excellence, I just find incredibly exciting Mm. and enthralling. And that motivates me every day. I love it. I need to come to your household, I think, (laughs) every evening. Um, Okay. So speaking of pursuit of excellence... um, what do you do on the weekends? And I'm most curious about where we could find you, where our listeners could find you 10 a.m. on a Saturday morning. I mean, I can't imagine what the answer is going to be with four children, a spouse, gardening interests, party planning for 300 people, (laughs) and Lord knows what else you have on your plate, never mind hundreds of millions of dollars that you're investing on behalf of other people. But tell me, where would we find you 10 a.m. on a Saturday morning? Yes, so I actually have a good answer to this question now, and that is actually getting off the squash court. So I love squash. I am not an expert in squash by a long shot, (laughs) but I find it to be incredibly fun, incredibly invigorating. And what I love about squash is it's somewhat like being a portfolio manager. It is an incredibly imperfect game, right? Mm -hmm. You're playing off of dynamics of balls can bounce anywhere, and you just have to get it back and get it to be... To the other person to miss it <laughs> before you miss it. And I love it. Is that like it, it is like investing. It is like investing, right? You just have to win 51% you of the time. You just have to win 51% of the That's time. It. That's it. And you get an incredible workout, no matter how bad you are, yeah. <laughs> how much you lose. Um, so that is where you'd find me 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning. My youngest is also taking squash classes. So she has her young person, six-year-old squash class while I have my adult squash class. So coming back from squash. But otherwise on the weekends, I've certainly with four kids doing lots of activities with them, with my husband, with friends. And, you know, during the summer, love to garden, love to spend time at the beach, outdoors, travel, certainly when we have the time for yeah. it. But I'd say it's a lot of quality family time. And then during those down times or I'm in transport, I am listening to podcasts or catching up on Bloomberg or CNBC interviews. Ooh, favorite favorite podcast, favorite podcast. Um, the Odd Lots podcast. Oh, yeah. Okay. I love oh, great. Very good. Very good. Okay. I can see how having perspective that you get from being away from the machinations of the market every day, how that helps kind of keep your sanity, keep your sensibilities, right? And so the perspective you get outside of the office, I think is so important and make no mistake, I also know for a fact the four children have offered up many good investment ideas. Yes, yes, in the past as well. Absolutely, so we spend time on the weekends. (laughs) We spend time on the weekends doing research. Yes, you will find us in stores. You will find us online. To anyone looking to be a successful investor out there, you've just got to rope in new sources from uh, from from kids ages six to (laughs) fourteen. Yes, yes. No, my fourteen-year-old in particular. Actually, all of them have given us very profitable investing ideas. (laughs) Do you think Eddie will follow in your footsteps? 
potentially my son, you ask my son, what would you like to do? And he says he wants to be an investor. And he actually has already had a stock portfolio. My oldest, I think she has given me very good investment ideas and investment insights. So who knows? She's very talented. She's actress, stand-up comedian, singer, songwriter as well. So we'll see what she decides. My second daughter says, no, I would not want to do that. Um, she, <laughs> She's incredible, not as interested right now in the markets. Who knows? Right. And then our six-year-old, Elizabeth, we'll, we'll see. We'll she's see. on the squash court. Yeah, she's, She'll she, be the professional athlete. <laughs> she's going to have a very dynamic life, whatever she decides <laughs> to pursue. Well, you and and I, I also have the privilege of knowing and working with your husband as well. You're wonderful role models, obviously, for your four children, certainly for all of our colleagues across Rockefeller Capital Management and a true inspiration for men and women alike in our industries and our clients who are fortunate enough to be aligned with you and your team. So we can't thank you enough for being so generous with your time today and sharing your personal story. Thank you, Avery. Oh, thank you, Laura. Really my pleasure and an honor to work with you as well. Thank you for listening to Genius Loves Company. To learn more about Rockefeller Capital Management, visit rockco.com or keep up with us on LinkedIn or Instagram. This material was prepared by Rockefeller Capital Management. The views expressed of the hosts and guests in this episode are as of a particular point in time and are subject to change without notice. The views expressed by the speakers are solely their own and may differ from or conflict with those of other divisions in Rockefeller Capital Management. This information was provided for illustrative and educational purposes only. It should not be construed as an investment recommendation, investment advice, an offer of Rockefeller or investment advisory or brokerage services or a projection or illustration of the performance of any particular investment or strategy offered by Rockefeller. Forward-looking statements, including those presented herein, are inherently uncertain, as future events may differ materially from those reflected, and past performance is not a guarantee of future performance.